This is the Navy crew this morning. You got to swim here, boat here. Glad you're here. Have a song for you. That great gospel singer, Kenny Chesney, offers us a song about recovery. Let me read just a couple of lines to you. Well, I ain't had nothing to drink. I knew that's probably what you'd think if I dropped by this time of night. Remember way back when I promised you I'd drop in at one of those meetings down at the Y? They started talking about steps you take, mistakes you make, the hearts you break, and the price you pay. I almost walked away. You could hear a pin drop when this old man stood up and said, I'm going to say it again like I do every week for those who don't know me. Telling your story, working through the steps. May you hear the voice of God this morning and may it awaken us all on this rainy morning to what God has for us. Words are on the back of your notes. <clears throat> I ain't had nothing to drink I knew that's probably what you think If I drop by this time of night Remember way back when I promised you I'd drop in At one of those meetings down the wild They started talking about steps you take Mistakes you make, the heart you break, and the price you pay. I almost walked away. You could hear a pin drop when this old man stood up and said, I'm gonna say it again like I do every week. For those who don't know me, it's a simple thing. Life, like the kids at home and a loving wife that you miss the most when you lose control. And everything you love starts to disappear. The devil takes your hand and says, No fear, have another shot. Just one more beer. Yeah, I've been there. That's why I'm here. So boy stood up in the aisle, said he'd be living a life of denial, and he cried as he talked about wasted years. I couldn't believe what I heard, it was my life word for word, and all of a sudden it was clear. It's a simple thing to life like the kids at home and a loving wife that you miss the most when you lose control. And everything you love starts to disappear. The devil takes your hand and says, no fear, have another shot. Just one more beer. Yeah, I've been there. That's why I'm here. 
strong. The words from 1 Corinthians 16, 13. 12 steps, <clears throat> a classic model for spiritual growth. As Joe was saying, uh, this is not an AA meeting and we're not talking about recovery from uh, alcoholism, uh, drug addiction. We could be. I know you got, I know some of your guys' story. But again, what recovery is about, even if you are fighting an addiction is recovering that which has been lost and restoring that which God intended all along. I mean, what did God intend when he made you? When the Trinity sat in the boardroom, the Holy of Holies, and thought about you, how close to that original blueprint are you now? You're not nearly what God intended because we're all broken and we're less than what we could be and what God intended. And so on the road to recovery is the ideal of recovering that which God intended all along. We hadn't been in so many bar fights, so to speak. Um, today we look at step four. Um, Roan started us off a couple weeks ago because step four is kind of a hinge step. Uh, it changes the, 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 the tone and the tenor of where we're headed because this is where we really start looking at our own lives. Uh, Jeff put up the uh, first slide there in terms of uh, <clears throat> the next one. The, uh, the summary of the 12 steps um, on step four, as you can see, uh, after having established peace with God through the first three steps, now we start working on ourselves, And this is where it really gets hard because we all have blind spots. In my book that I wrote, uh, this is the bull. Uh, the bull does not know himself and others know him better than he knows himself. So this is where we've really got to do 
a searching and fearless moral inventory of our life. Sounds easy enough, right? Uh-uh. It's not easy because you and I are full of denial. We like being in control. Uh, we are adverse to vulnerability. We're scared to death to show our weakness. It's not manly. And we're really, really good at wearing fig leaves. I so much appreciated Jim, Chris, sharing with us last week, ward robe. And he used the metaphor. Do we have our fig leaves on as our ward robe in the war that we're in? Or do we wear the armor of God? And, you know, I'm ashamed to say, as I would hope that you would be ashamed to say, that I'm so much more about fig leaves too much of the time than I am about the armor of God some of the time. Um, as Joe's been encouraging you with, there's a Bible verse connected to each one of the steps. Um, today, we're on step four. I'm going to teach you the Bible verse. I, I have a high hopes that you can learn this. It's three phrases. Three phrases. Are you up for it? All right, now repeat after me. Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. See there? You can do it. All right, let's, let's do it one more time. Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Okay. That's Lamentations 3.20. And all God's people said, amen. We'll have the offering now. <clears throat> Gentlemen, step four um, is this idea of really looking at ourselves. I want you to pick up your pen. Let's go to work. I have three questions for you. <clears throat> First question that I want you to uh, respond to is what are your resentments from painful experiences? What are your resentments from painful experiences? Now, as you're thinking about that, again, I want you to think about, I would invite you to think about three painful experiences from your life. Just jot them down. This is a brief uh, trauma egg. Uh, those of us who are in uh, recovery work and mental health work, we work with an instrument called the trauma egg. But write down three painful experiences, and what do you resent about that? What shouldn't have happened in those ex painful experiences? It ought not to be that way, painful experience. The word resentment elicits the idea of anger. What are you angry about? You know, I don't have any resentments, but I'm mad as baloney. You know, that's resentments. I once had a guy stand up at my office. He was so mad. And he said, I said to him, I said, man, you're really angry. He said, I'm not angry. I'm frustrated. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. 
Silly me. I thought you were angry. What do I know? <clears throat> the idea of resentments and anger also is the idea of trauma. When we're responding to this first question, we're into trauma work. Trauma, um, definition of trauma is a real or perceived threat to my life. And when you were little, there were painful experiences that happened. And all of a sudden, not dealing with that will set you up for addictive behavior. Second question, where does your fear come from? Now, I didn't ask you what you fear or are you afraid. That's assumed. You are afraid. You're afraid. It'd be good to identify what you're afraid of. But I'm asking you, where does your fear come from? In so many ways, my own fear, um, I know, came from an overly intrusive, very loving mother and a detached, non-emotionally involved dad. And that set me up for uh, always feeling like mama was going to bail me out, but never knowing how to take responsibility for my own life and fight my own battles. And so when I have fear, I know that there's this, there's this unconscious, if not even conscious signal in my head, where's my mama? Or daddy, show me how to take care of this and he ain't, and he ain't talking, you know, that sort of thing. There's a great um, scene in the movie, My Life, that we used to show at deer camp uh, every weekend. Bobby Jones is a character, and he introduces us to his life in the very beginning of the movie, and he takes us back to some old um, eight-millimeter uh, film of his uh, life, and he shows us a, a roller coaster, and, and, he, and he said, you know, that's when fear first entered my life. He could actually pinpoint how getting on a roller coaster scared him to death. And that is the symbol, was the symbol of his fear. Identifying your fear is critical to your recovery. Final question. What areas of your life, sexual, financial, emotional, social, or character defects are holding you back? Multiple choice. Sexual, all the above. All the above. Sexual, financial, emotional, social, or character defects. If Jesus stood at the foot of your bed at 2 a.m. in the morning, you woke up and, oh, my goodness, it's Jesus. And he said, which one of the five would you like for me to help you with? And if you said, oh, none of them, I'm, I'm fine, then you would be stupid, gentlemen. That would be stupid. Where would you like to have the help? A spiritual, searching, fearless, moral inventory of your life. It's what's underneath the addiction that counts. It's the cause of your addiction. I want to read something to you um, from David Benner. Um, I've read this before. 
but it certainly fits in our series. I would be amiss not to read this this one page out of uh, David Benner's book, uh, The Spiritual Practices for the Human Journey. Soulful Spirituality is uh, the name of the book. Soulful Spirituality. Great book. David Benner is a wise uh, counselor, um, coach, uh, mentor to so many over, uh, well, he used to live in Atlanta. I think he's up in Canada now. But David Benner says this under the heading, the religious core of addiction. He summarizes on this one page what addiction, what two elements really make addictive behavior addiction. Listen to this. The reason surrender forms such an important part of 12-step spirituality such as Alcoholics Anonymous is that control is a foundational dynamic of addictions. Our real addiction is not to things like alcohol, drugs, or pornography, but to control. Now write that down on your notes right there. Note to self, control is my issue. We desperately try to, to control our feelings, our impulses, ourselves. We use substances and ritualized behaviors as ways of distracting ourselves from what we seek to avoid, our failure, our shame, and our brokenness. The things to which we seem to be addicted are the mask behind which we hide our real addiction. What we are most deeply addicted to is the illusion of control. That's what you're addicted to. That's what I'm addicted to. I want to control it. We are, we're all addicts. Welcome. Glad you're here. We're all addicted to playing God. This is the religious core of addiction, any addiction. Being human involves enormous vulnerability and risk. Often, therefore, we choose the bondage of addiction over the anxiety and freedom that comes with living life fully alive, fully awake, and fully aware. The primary function of any addiction is to numb and desensitize. Task number one is to keep us asleep and unaware. Regardless of whether our addictive behaviors revolve around food, excessive work, or exercise, or sex, the goal is to anesthetize us to the terrors of real living in the face of the unavoidable mystery of being human. It is this terror that we most want to control and from which we most want to escape. The demon in the dark of our inner basement is nothing more or less than our fear of being fully alive, fully awake. We're scared of that. I just want to numb out. This fear makes it hard for us to accept our finitude. The illusion of control and the possibility of managing life as opposed to living it keeps us forever trying to get it right or if we cannot do this, at least to fix things that go wrong. It keeps us saying, quote, I can, unquote, when the truth would be to acknowledge, quote, I can't, unquote. It keeps us pretending that we are God rather than putting our trust in something or someone greater than our ego self. So two parts of addiction, one is control, and here comes the second one. 
control. That's the first problem. Here's the second problem. Addictions have one more important function. Not only do they distract us from such things as the existential terror of living and our agenda of control, but they also mask a most surprising longing, a longing to surrender. We were made to surrender. Isn't that interesting? We were made to surrender. This deep desire is, of course, opposed by an often equally strong wish to avoid surrender. But keep within us, uh, but deep within us, we are aware that ego is a usurper. Somehow we know that we are neither the center of the universe, nor should ego be the center of our being. At some deep level of spirit, we know that we were meant to live in alignment with forces transcendent to ourselves. We long to be able to face the uncertainty and uncontrollability of life with confidence and with a sense of safety that can never be delivered by the inflated ego pretending to be God. We long to be able to put our trust in someone or something greater than us. We long for surrender. The truth is that we must all surrender to something or someone. To refuse to find our place in relation to that which transcends the ego is to surrender to addiction and to the illusion of being in control. If we do not become free in relation to the something or someone larger than ourselves, we become unfree in relation to tyrannizing powers within ourselves that we have inflated to godlike proportions. So we surrender to less than adequate gods. We surrender to alcohol. We surrender to controlling behavior. We bow the knee to food, drugs, relationships, rather than surrender to God himself. Control and surrender are the two elements that are key to understanding addiction. We've got to do this moral inventory of our lives. What am I trying to control? And what am I surrendering to illegitimately that has control over me? Gentlemen, to engage in this step invites us into examining our emotional life. Speaking to a bunch of men, that can be really dangerous, confusing, abstract. It's like I just showed you an Andy Warhol painting um, and not a, um, I'm drawing a blank. What's the guy that painted the uh, uh, 50s pictures of the guy sitting on the Coke stand? and uh, Norman Rockwell. Yeah, Norman Rockwell. Yeah. You think life is an as a Andy Warhol because it's so confusing. And we've got to make it a Norman Rockwell. First thing we've got to be in order to do step four is get honest. Be honest. Got to be honest of my moral failures. 
that's hard to do. Why is that so hard to do? Why is that hard to do? Anybody? Why is that hard to do? Sounds easy enough. Why is it so hard to be honest about my moral failures? I don't want to admit it. Pride. I can't want to, as Abigail used to say. Fear. They might actually want you to change. I go to church. The way I was conditioned, it's the way I grew up. We've, all, we've always done it in the Hardin family for three generations like that, right? How about shame? I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. The second piece that you've got to do beyond being honest is you've got to own the problem. It's yours. And what you and I do consistently is what we want to do What's the opposite of owning the problem? Blaming. Blaming. You know, well, they made me do it. Or they're the ones at fault. I can't get where I want to get because they are just too hard to live with. I was sitting in a counseling office trying to convince a counselor years ago how difficult it was to live with Carla. And the counselor, you know how these counselors are, they can just be so annoying sometimes. And this counselor had the audacity to look at me and say, Carla is not your problem. And I wanted to say lots of things to him at that point, one of which, well, yeah, thank you. one of which was not thank you, and one of which was, well, you don't live with her, you know? But, man, it, he nailed me. You know, it's not Carla, it was me. And I did not want to own it. I wanted to blame. I'm telling you, gentlemen, as much as addiction is our issue, part of our addictive problem is that we're blamers and we don't want to accept responsibility. I want you to turn over to Lamentations 3. I just uh, We just uh, went through Lamentations 3, verse 40. But I want to read the context to you. I love this passage. Um, again, God's trying to bring his people after exile in Babylon um, through the prophet Jeremiah back into good standing with him. And this is the lament of how their lives have been broken. Lamentations, the lament. I'm going to start with verse 25 and just read down through the passage. I should have told Jeff this earlier. He could have put up the whole passage, but I forgot to do that. Jeff, my, my um, apology. Verse 25, the Lord is wonderfully good to those who wait for him and seek him. So it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord, and it is good for the young to submit to the yoke of his discipline. It's good to be in recovery is what I would say. Jeff is so cool. Let them sit alone in silence beneath the Lord's demands. Let them lie face down in the dust, and then at last there is hope for them. Let them turn the other cheek to those who strike them. Let them accept the insults of their enemies. Humility, humility, humility. For the Lord does not abandon anyone forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion according to the greatness of his unfailing love. 
for he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. God's not mad at you. He doesn't enjoy the struggle that you're in, but he will take you through that process. But the leaders of his people trample prisoners underfoot. They deprive people of their God-given rights in defiance of the Most High. They perverted justice in the courts. Do they think the Lord didn't see it? Can anyone happen upon the Lord's permission? Can anything happen without the Lord's permission? Is it not the Most High who helps one and harms another? Then why should we, mere humans, complain when we are punished for our sins? And I would, I would just say punished for our sins. How about just experiencing the consequences of our sins? How about that? You got found out, didn't you? You got found out. Well, bless your heart. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. This is a good thing. Instead, let us test and examine our ways. Let us turn again in repentance to the Lord. And that's our Bible verse for the day. That's just in the New Living. Let us examine and probe our ways. And let us return to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven and say, we have sinned and rebelled and you have not forgiven us. We have sinned and rebelled. Gentlemen, step four is about taking responsibility for your life and not blaming other people for the circumstances you're in. You've got to own your shortcomings and you're not going to be able to do step four without help. This is where, in AA language, you need a sponsor. This, this is where you've got to have somebody, as we say at Deer Camp, our men's coaching weekend, you've got to have feedback. You've got to have somebody that will look you in the eyes in a very loving, non-condemning way and say, this is what I see. Problem is, you and I aren't willing to sit in that kind of a circle or that kind of relationship. See, what step four is about is confession. It's the idea of acknowledge. And that takes courage. And what we're confessing and acknowledging, as a good friend of mine who is an AA vet, um, let me tell you what happened yesterday about this. I was driving up from Fairhope Tuesday morning, and uh, Tommy Coleman, uh, I know that uh, Clay knows Tommy Coleman. He's a Yazoo City guy, good guy. And Tommy has uh, been in recovery for a number of years and is an AA veteran and it helped many, many men. He sent men to me. I've sent men to Tommy. Tommy loves the 12 steps and has seen the 12 steps work in his life. And I was thinking about Tommy and I thought, I'll call him on my way up, and I just want to get Tommy's perspective on step four. What, what, do you, what do you do when you get to step four with a guy that you're working with? Well, I, you know, I got busy uh, drinking coffee. You know, it's, it's hard work drinking coffee, and I forgot. I forgot to call him. Dude, my phone rings yesterday. I hadn't uh, spoken to Tommy Coleman in a year. Tommy Coleman shows up on my phone. And uh, he had a question for me and I had a question for him. And 
I asked him about step four, and he said, you know, Phil, the thing about step four is that this is where uh, guys in recovery, gals in recovery have got to get honest about the good, the bad, and the ugly of their lives. And he said, sometimes they can't even see the good. It's not always the bad. Sometimes they can't even see the good. Like they're so full of shame that they're down on themselves so much that that's why they keep drinking. Sometimes they need to see how good they are, how much that their sons and their daughters need them as fathers. It's the good and the bad and the ugly. It's, and it's this idea, once again, if you're going to get there, you've got to have a sponsor because so much of this step is increasing your awareness because the objective of life is to become known. That's how the Bible defines eternal life. So you got to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly and become known in how you're gifted and become known in how you're broken. And there's basically seven areas to consider. Seven areas to consider. Resentment, fear, sexual area, financial area, emotional area, social area, and character. It starts to break it down in, into small bites. I want to show you, I want to introduce you to Austin. And Austin is a man uh, who is working through step four. Watch how he does it. Watch this. I never thought that my actions would ever find their way to hurting my family or the people that I loved. And now I was faced with a very real prospect of that and more. I, 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 at the time, was robbing drug dealers um, because I thought they're never going to call the cops. We started getting phone calls from everybody that knew us with a lot of fear in their voice, and we didn't know why. There were people with machine guns and Uzis and shotguns breaking into everybody that we knew's house and waking them up in bed demanding to know where we were. These people were armed. They were very dangerous. And they had a lot of money to throw around and offered it for any information as to where I was headed and where my family was located. And I was running. The man who had put the hit out on our heads, he had been in a car accident and died himself. And we were informed that we were safe to come home. I uh, started drinking real heavily. I was ashamed of who I was. I was ashamed of what I knew I was capable of and what I had what I had done all my life. I thought an addict was someone with no willpower, that needed something, that needed to depend on somebody or something 
in order to be okay. And that, that wasn't me. I was, I was the one-man army. I started trying on my own, um, very hard to quit. And after months of that, I, I almost completely gave up because I, I, I couldn't do it. So I, uh, I went to the bishop and he gave me the ARP, the Addiction Recovery Program Manual. I, I, I learned a great deal, but again, I thought I could do it on my own. Then he mentioned that there were group meetings where people like me met together and shared each other's struggles. It's very hard to describe uh, the, the empathy, the love, the honesty, the humility that, that you feel when you walk in, into that group. They've all been there to one degree or another. So I, I got through the first three steps fairly well on my own. I got to step four. I had no problem sitting there and listing every fault that I had, but I didn't know what to do with that. I go through it again, though, with a sponsor was, was quite different uh, because, you know, they emphasize uh, not just uh, your weaknesses, but also your strengths. And that was hard because I didn't want to see the good. I was I accepted and I knew the bad. The fourth step helped me to see the good that was always there. There was a lot of good. It was just hidden and buried underneath substances and habits and years of guilt, years of shame. I learned that I needed my God. I learned that I needed my brothers and sisters around me. And every time I, I think that it can't get any better, it, uh, it does. It keeps getting better. When I talked to my uh, friend Tommy Coleman uh, yesterday, he said um, one of the things that was that's so helpful to men and women that he's helped through step four. He said, Phil, you, at this point, you've got to slow it down and you take it one word at a time. One word at a time. He said, I've sat with men and women and just uh, worked through uh, each word of step four. Made, 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 take action. Made a searching, a searching, you know, not, not just a casual but a searching, really looking, trying to find it. As uh, David says in Psalm 139, God, search me, search my heart and see if there be any, any hurtful way in me. Fearless, fearless, not afraid to look at the darkness in our own heart and so on. The seven areas to consider those resentments, fears, sexual, financial, emotional, social character. In the few minutes we have left, let's just work through resentment. Resentment is the result of a collision between your actions fed by your pride and either the actions of other people or your own grandiosity. 
again, it's those childhood experiences often that things happened and it shouldn't happen. Things that happened with my dad that for years I was angry. I used to fight with my dad all the time. I, I would just be angry with him. I was so mad. I resented things that happened and things that didn't happen. So in step four, I am resentful at, identify the person or object of my resentment. I had a gentleman come into my office recently. He was mad about his work. He was working way more than he wanted to work. What's interesting about this gentleman is he owns his own business. That's interesting. What's wrong with this picture? He's mad and he's the owner of the business. Okay, I got you. So I just let him burn up about 30 minutes of his time, ranting and raving. You know, the meter's running. We're just driving around the blocks the way I look at it, you know. And then I, and then I asked, you know, what's the cause of your resentment? And you know what he said? It's people's demands on my time. Everybody wants a piece of me. Uh, so what's he doing right there? Therapist in the room, what's he doing? He's blaming. Everybody else is the problem, you know. I don't know how he shaves in the morning because evidently he never looks himself in the mirror. Third question, the effect of resentment in my life is, I asked him that question. You know what he said? Not surprising. I wind up taking out my frustration on my wife and my kids. I go home and I'm mad at them. Man, you must be a peach to live with, dude. You know? His children doesn't want to really be with him. His wife is heartbroken. And then the final question, what I did earlier to cause this behavior, we finally got to this question, what I did to cause this behavior. And when I asked him that question, I, I, I was shocked that he nailed it. You know what he said? He said, I've realized sitting here talking with you because you're so helpful. Dude, I hadn't said anything. I hadn't said anything. And he said, you know, I learned to be a people pleaser years ago. I learned it with my dad, and I learned to people please. And it's just about ruined my life. Now, that's working through resentments. And by the time he left, he was determined that he was going to start setting boundaries, take responsibility for his life, put together a schedule of his day, uh, start going home at 5 o'clock because he could. He owned the business and start to take charge of his life rather than trying to control everybody else, resent everybody else. He started the road to recovery. Gentlemen, you got to get honest. I assure you, that every problem that you have has you involved. 
was, <laughs> I just came up with that. I was, that's, that's, that's incredible. Profound, exactly, you know. I've been watching lots of Dr. Phil reruns lately, so it's really good. It's like, wow, every problem you have, you're involved. And you've got to look yourself in the mirror, not just to keep from cutting yourself as you shave, some of you that do, but so that can you can really get honest and truly be in recovery. Examine your life. Probe your ways. And let us return to the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the morning you've given us. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. And Father, I pray that each man here this morning would leave with a courageous, fearless attitude of looking at ourselves in a way that would bring healing to us, honor to you, and love to all those that we come in contact with. Thank you for our time. In Jesus' name, amen.